The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, our Father God, we want to come to you today knowing we need shepherding, knowing, knowing we need guarding and guiding through the valley uh, of darkness, knowing that we cannot protect ourselves or provide for ourselves, but knowing that you've given the Lord Jesus to be a good shepherd to his people. Please gather us in that flock, feed us, uh, we pray, um, shepherd us and our families, the children next door as well, we ask, um, through the, the goodness of your word. Uh, meet with us, we pray, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're keeping going with this overview of the story of the Bible. And when we left it last time, we got the whole of God's people into the promised land. They'd escaped from Egypt. And sort of key verse in the book of Joshua, I put at the top of your sheets, the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, that's in the promised land, and set up the tent of meeting there. That's the tabernacle. And the land lay subdued before them. So all the way through the Bible, there have been these promises to Abraham that drive the story. That God will have a great people, descendants of Abraham. They'll have a place to live, the promised land, and he'll be present with them, living with them. And here in... uh, Oh, sorry, I put John 18.1. That's Joshua 18.1. Sorry, that's either an autocorrect or a typo. Um, Joshua 18.1. It seems that that's beginning to be fulfilled. So they've largely conquered the promised land. God's there dwelling in that big, sometimes called the Shekinah glory cloud, that fiery cloudy pillar that led them through the the desert. They've done their 40 years of wandering and they're there. And then we come to the book of Judges. If you wanted one word to describe the book of Judges, I'd go with spiralling. People talk about spiralling nowadays, don't they? Kind of going downhill, down and down and down, like water down a plug hole. And that's kind of what goes on in Judges. So in the book of Judges... Come to chapter 1, and so you, after Joshua, Judges 1, you'll see that it begins, Judges 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua. So the people are in the land, but Joshua has now died. There's no one leader. And if you look down at verse 27, if you've got an ESV that the editors have helpfully put in a little title, failure to complete the conquest. So verse 27 of chapter 1, Manasseh didn't drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages. Verse 29, next paragraph, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Giza. So the Canaanites lived in Giza among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. On and on it goes throughout the tribes. Although they're in the land, they've they've sort of conquered it. They are the overlords, as it were. They've left lots and lots of Canaanites in the land. And there's this kind of intermixing. And this leaves spiritual and physical danger for Israel. And what you see throughout the book of Judges is a pattern. And It's not my diagram. I've stolen it off, I don't know who, um, someone on the internet. This pattern whereby the people, if you start at the top of the diagram, they get drawn into idolatry. They... They start being interested in the gods that they've, of the people that they've left in the land. And therefore, God reverses things. So they come under the power of those nations. They cry out eventually for, for rescue. God sends a deliverer, a judge, who rescues them. There's some rest. But then they turn back to idolatry. So if you're in the book of Judges, just see this in chapter 2 and verse uh, 7. This is a pattern... Um, 
That's totally the wrong verse. I've gone mad this week with Bible verses. What am I doing? Don't know. Oh, it's, no, it's chapter 3, verse 7. Okay, not, not, not so far off. Chapter 3, verse 7. There's Othniel. So, watch, watch the cycle. Verse 7 of chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it doesn't just mean they sinned and they were a bit angry or lusted or something or greedy. Evil in the sight of the Lord means turned, turned to other gods. They became idolaters. Worship Baal or whoever. There we go. Explain next. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, male and female fertility gods. So there's the idolatry. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of an unpronounceable king of Mesopotamia. Okay, so there's the oppression. The people of Israel served this king for eight years. It's like they're back in slavery. It's like the Exodus never happened, even though they're in the land. But, verse 9, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, so there they are, they're crying out for salvation, the Lord raised up a deliverer. These are the judges. This time, it's uh, this guy Othniel, who's Caleb. Remember, Caleb was one of the good spies. Joshua and Caleb were the good spies. Uh, Othniel comes, the spirit of the Lord is on him. He judges Israel, which means not just that he sits as a kind of court judge, although he does a bit of that, but also he's a kind of military leader. Most of them are military leaders. Not all, but most. He goes out to war, conquers Kushan, Rish, whatever his name is. So, verse 11, the, Lord, the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, dies. So the judge dies. And lo and behold, next verse, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so another king comes, this time it's Eglon, and this time the, the servitude lasts 18 years. And again they cry out in verse 15, and again he sends another judge, this time it's Ehud, and again you get a story of rescue, and there's rest. But each time as we go round this circle in Judges, each time the, the length of time they have to serve tends to get longer, so the punishment tends to get longer, and the rest period tends to get shorter. In other words, the whole book kind of the, the, it goes further and further down the plug hole. And each judge, each judge that God sends to rescue them, interestingly, is kind of weak in some way. So Ehud is left-handed. He's the first, or the next judge after Othniel. He's the story of Eglon, the fat king, and Ehud is the left-handed saviour. To be left-handed is a bit sort of unusual, um, particularly if you're fighting in an army. Then there's Deborah. You don't often get women leading... Um, the people of God and the army or whatever in the Old Testament, that's seen as unusual. Gideon, when he's called, remember with the fleece, Gideon is uh, weak and timid and his army is reduced down. Maybe he starts with thousands of them and it's, 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 God says that's too many. So it reduces it down and down until it's just the ones who lap with their hands. And there's 300 left. Samson saves, but he's blinded by the time he saves and he saves by dying, pushing the pillars down. So his death is what saves so each victory is a kind of victory and weakness kind of victory. But the book ends really horribly. If you come to the end of the book of Judges, it's absolutely grim. Judges 19. And basically we get, the, we get this Levite, so one of the priestly tribe. He's got a concubine. That's not a great start. <coughs> Excuse me. He goes travelling and he goes to the land of Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is going to be big this morning, okay? So, Gibeah. We often miss place names and the significance of kind of names in the Bible because they don't mean anything to us. You know, if I say Birmingham, you've got connotations. You know roughly where it is or London or Edinburgh or whatever. Bible place names we don't tend to think much of, but it'll have resonance this morning. So, he goes to Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin, but when he stays there overnight with his, with his concubine, 
that the men of Gibeah say, come out, come out, so we can abuse the man. And then the guy he's staying with says, no, 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 don't do that. And so what ends up happening horribly is that the man's concubine um, ends up getting abused so badly she dies. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of the most horrific stories in the Bible. And so, so appalled are the rest of Israel by this that the other tribes get together and wage a holy war against the tribe of Benjamin. Against the, the people of Gibeah to punish them. And that, that's extraordinary. That means we've moved from the book of Joshua, where, do you remember we saw last week, there's, there's holy war against the Canaanites. God is judging the Canaanites for their sin. Um, and the people of God are the kind of instruments of God's justice. Now it's the other way around. And a holy war is, is, is being waged against God's own people, the Benjaminites, by the other ones. That's how unclean they've become. And so the whole book ends, sort of almost the most famous book in the book of Judges, is that last verse put on there on the sheets. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Total carnage um, and utter wickedness by the end of the book. So much so that there's a, a holy war against, internally, against the people of God. And that's what leads us into kind of where we're going to spend most of our time today, the, the, the book of Samuel. We, we've left the story, there's no king in Israel, and realising that is going to be a problem. Um, Ruth, that is sandwiched in between Judges and Samuel, tells the story of this seemingly irrelevant family at this stage. Ruth, who comes home, um, to, or comes back, she's a Moabitess, she comes into Israel because of her mother-in-law, ends up married to Boaz, who start this family, there's this guy Jesse, He's going to be the father of someone called David. At this stage of the story, we don't know who David is. But 1 Samuel is going to deal with that. So, come to 1 Samuel. And the rest of our time, we're going to be in 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, 1 Samuel seems to begin strangely. There's no great sort of high drama. It's not about kings and nations. It's about this, this woman, Hannah, who's married um, uh, to El, uh, Elkanah. And she hasn't got any kids. And she prays at the tabernacle. Uh, for a son and although she's been barren for a long time she's granted this son um, who she calls Samuel and she's so pleased that she sings this song so 1 Samuel 2 it's a really although it's the song of a seemingly sort of random irrelevant sort of humble peasant woman it, it's crucial for the book it starts the book and it's <coughs> illustrative of, of what it's going to be about so 1 Samuel 2 Hannah prayed and sang or said, sorry, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Literally, that's talk no more so high, high. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Um, jump down to verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Hannah's song is all about how God raises up the nobodies and opposes the high, the arrogant, the mighty. So again, verse three, um, talk not so very high, high. Well, talk not more so high, high. The word is repeated. Remember, God is called holy, holy, holy in Isaiah. And if you repeat something, it makes it more strong. Well, talk not so high, high. And the word there is geboa, geboa, high, high, geboa, geboa. Again, the reason for that will come back later. So the, the book is set up with this song about this God who raises up the, the lowly and strikes down the high. And then we get into the action proper. And Eli, the priest, who's got these unfaithful sons, um, is getting old and he's been OK, but his sons are scoundrels. And so the ark is captured. Um, and this... this symbol of God's presence with the people is taken out into exile it's God who goes into exile God who goes on exodus this time not the people so the people in the land but God is God he's captured Uh, and this is where you're going to do some work around tables 1 Samuel 5 the Philistines have captured the ark and if you look at the last verse at the end of chapter 4 the glory has departed from Israel the ark of God has been captured So think of those promises. You have got God's people in God's place, but God is not present with them. He himself is gone into exile rather than them. And what you're going to do is look at the first four verses of chapter five and think about what the story teaches about God. And can you think of any links between what happens to Dagon, who's this false God, and other themes in scripture? Other ones we've seen already, stuff that occurs to you. So again, five minutes around tables, two questions, just the first four verses of chapter five. Okay. It's a great little incident, isn't it? God totally on his own in the temple. No one's around to help. There's no priests, prophets, kings, Israelites, soldiers, judges, warriors, just on his own. And um, the ark's there, the statue of Dagon. Um... Dagon's fallen over. They go back the next day. They put him upright. So he needs propping up. Okay, the, the, the idol needs putting back on his feet. Needs his little helpers. Come down the next day, and he's fallen flat on his face, and the head has been cut off. Hands line cut off, um, and the head. Yeah. Any thoughts? Or the two questions. Yeah. What, what was it t- telling us about God, or was it teaching Israelites about God? Okay, he's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't need help. Okay, he just on his own. He can easily smash up the other the other gods. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what about? Let's just move on to the second question. What? What? Yeah. Any themes? Do you pick up any themes being kind of that are kind of sounding again in that passage? Okay. Yep. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Yeah. 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 Totally. Philippians two, the poem. You know, God's raised him up so every knee will bow. Yep. Um, any other themes or? I was slightly reading Heaven and Hand Out. At least you're missing it. Is that you know the head theme? Mm. There's the serpent theme, isn't there? But I was just wondering about the hands as well. I don't know if he a bit of the, the 
you know, the fact that the snake doesn't have any hands. <laughs> bit, bit left field. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I know. Yeah, I never thought about it. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. But certainly the head. Yeah, he's got the head smashing off. You know, that, that's. Remember, Jen, the first promise of the gospel was one of your Eve's descendants will crush Satan's head. So head crushing is going to be a, a big thing. We skipped over a story in, in Judges in the middle where, um, I should have put it in, where this, this bad king, Sisera, is running around and causing carnage. And eventually he gets defeated. He runs away. He gets defeated by the Deborah and Balak, so female judge, he's got there. And then as he's hiding, um, he hides in this woman Jael's tent. And um, she says, yeah, come in, have a lie down. She gives him some sort of warm milk. He goes to sleep. And then she, she smacks a tent peg through his head. Um, crushes his head. So it's like that head crushing thing. And there's another king who gets um, a millstone thrown on his head. So they're up in a tower and someone lobs a, a stone out and his head gets... Anytime someone has his head smashed in, it's a kind of, oh, look, they're a serpenty type character. Uh, let's press on with one Samuel. Samuel, this, this judge, this little boy, grows up and he leads and he's a good leader of Israel. He's a faithful, he's the last of the judges really. Um, but as he gets older, um, Israel starts demanding a king. If you come on to chapter 8, what we read in 1 Samuel 8, verse uh, 4. All the elders of Israel, by the way, just let me pause there. All the way through the Bible, the, the church, the people of God has been led by elders. It's not a New Testament thing. Um, elders always oversee the people of God that's one of the reasons we have elders plural over us not just one person it's not a New Testament thing um, all the way through anyway elders the elders come together and they're not doing a good job this time and they say to Samuel at Ramah behold you're old okay nice <coughs> polite start you're, you are on your way out okay we don't like the look of your uh, yeah whatever BMI whatever um, behold you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways okay? your sons are scallywags now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations now there's the phrase a king to judge us to lead us like all the nations we want to be like the other nations there's nothing inherently wrong with a king in fact there were rules and laws about what a king should do woven in Deuteronomy but that king will be given by God at God's own time they're demanding one like the other nations we want to be more like Egypt we want to be more like Philistia we want to be more like the Amorites. And so God's, I mean, Samuel initially says, no, don't go down this path. Don't, don't, it's going to go wrong. And, and they say, no, we want one. And so God says, give them what they want. That's one of God's punishments in the Bible at times, giving people what we want. You don't want God to give you what you want. Okay, because our hearts are so messed up. We want all the wrong things most of the time. Uh, but they get this king and Saul is the first king. And look, so chapter nine, as it begins... Here's the first king. Uh, there was a man of Benjamin. Now, why might Benjamin worry us? Exactly. The baddies at the end of Judges are Benjaminites, and they, particularly the town of Gibeah. So already we know he's a Benjamite, whose name was Kish, the son of lots of people. Um, and he had a son whose name was Saul. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the other people. He is high. It's that word, Gibeah. Remember at the beginning uh, in Samuel's prayer, sorry, Hannah's prayer, the Lord opposes those who are high, high. This is exactly what Saul is. He is high, high. He's not only from 
Benjamin, we learn later, he's from Gibeah. So he's from that tribe that did all the horrendous stuff at the end of um, uh, Judges. And there's a kind of pun going on. I, I mean, I, it's the kind of thing that, yeah, I, I realise it might not kind of grab you on a Sunday morning, Hebrew puns. But that word high, the high, the lofty, Gibeah, Gibeah. Um, or oh, sorry, Geboa, Geboa. And Saul is from Gibeah. Okay, he is Geboa from Gibeah kind of thing. Like it, it's all resonating in an Israelite's ear. Um, he's, he's high from high town kind of thing. Um, lofty from Mount, whatever, Mount Lofty. <laughs> um, and so Saul becomes king, but he basically acts high and mighty. He, he despises God's word in various different ways. He rejects God's, God's word and is, is a sort of exalted. I can do what I want. I'm the king. And so as the story goes on, that, that God says, no, I'm going to go for a new king. And David, this is how David, the great king of, of the Old Testament, is discovered. He's, the, he's a nobody. He's the eighth son. Um, but while Saul stays on the throne, Samuel, okay, the, the, the prophet, judge, goes out and finds David and anoints him. But David isn't yet on the throne. So he's anointed, but not on the throne. Think forward to David's greatest son, Jesus. He's anointed. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, but he doesn't actually take the throne to his resurrection. So the story of David, at least until he takes the throne, is a bit like Jesus in his earthly life before he's raised up to glory. Anointed, but not ruling. And so although he's anointed, but not ruling, he's someone who's able to conquer. Again, just like the Lord Jesus, he's not on the throne during the days of calming the storm and quelling the evil spirits and driving out demons. And- yeah, disease and raising the dead. He's not on the throne in heaven, but he is the, the anointed king. He's showing that he really ought to be. And so does David. And so he defeats physical and, and spiritual enemies. Um, most famously, Goliath. Okay, it's quite, a, I guess, a well-known Bible story. Here is Goliath, another Giboa man, another huge tall man, towering over the Israelites. His armour is described as being scaly, as in like, ser- like serpent scales. <coughs> And what happens to him? Well, David comes and smacks him in the head with a pebble and then chops his head off. It's the second head smashing in of the book. So here is a, a son of Eve who can crush the scaly one's head. And not only does David defeat human physical enemies, he can defeat spiritual enemies. So in 1 Samuel 16, we read of Saul being tormented by evil spirits. And David plays music and he can drive the spirits away somehow. It's fascinating. He's the only person, I think, in the whole Bible other than Jesus, um, at least before Jesus, who can drive out evil spirits. I don't think anyone else in the Old Testament does. Somebody think of someone, let me know. But I I think he's the only person in the Old Testament who can sort of seemingly drive out evil spirits. And so he's acting as a king even before he's raised to the throne. And so what happens is, is Saul gets jealous of him because of all this success, military success, and he's, you know, popular and all the rest of it. And so David has to flee into exile. So he spends most of 1 Samuel hiding in caves, running around the desert, even going to the Philistines, the enemies. But the whole book ends with Saul's fall, right at the end of the book. Um, David is still not on the throne, although he's anointed. And 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, well, probably just one book, but as we've got them split in two, 1 Samuel ends with Saul losing a battle to the Philistines, the real enemy. And he has his head chopped off. So the third head crushing in the book 
but this time it's of the Israelite king. So the, um, the, the high, lofty Israelite king, who's got his head raised up, is brought low, has his head crushed, chopped off, and tragically it's the Israelite giant who has fallen low. So Geboah, the Geboah, the tall, lofty Saul from Gibeah, dies, and he dies on Mount Geboah, just to complete the, uh, uh, the pun, or Geboah, sorry. So 1 Samuel tells the story of the, 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 the high brought low, Dagon, Saul, um, Goliath brought low, and the lowly, Hannah, David, Samuel, raised up. That is the kind of God who's going to be at work. Um, you're going to do some discussion to finish our time off. Does anyone want to ask anything at this stage? Yo. Yes. David then goes on to the king. Yeah. But is that still part of the plan? No, it's a good question. So what um the the problem with So do anyone hear that question? So Saul Saul is is a bit like a, a punishment to the Israelites because they want a king like the other nations and he's a bad king and it all goes wrong for them. And correct me if I'm wrong, Tash, but your question is is David who turns out to be a good king as we happen to know, is he a continuation of that punishment or no, I don't, I don't think so. So back in Deuteronomy, I think it's in Deuteronomy 30, might have got the reference wrong, there are laws about what the king should do, okay, a good king should do. Now that's way before this. So God had obviously already always planned to have a king. Um, Adam was a king. So kingship in, in general wasn't a bad thing. Um, but it was the, I think it was the problem of the Israelites wanting one like the other nations and demanding one rather than God's provision of a king after his own heart, as it were. So it turns out David will be, the, more or less, with some pretty bad mess-ups along the way. He'll be a good model of kingship, which obviously points forward to Jesus. Who, yeah. So king in general, not a problem. Wanting a king like everybody else, to, so we can be like everybody else, like the nations, problem. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a parallel today, but I won't, because it might go into our questions. Any, any more before we do discussion? Happy. Okay, so for our last sort of few minutes, um, if one Samuel keeps warning us against being high and lifted up and putting our trust in a king like the other nations, um, or sometimes it's warning you against trusting in chariots and horses or basically earthly power and glory and whatever, um, rather than trusting in the Lord... Three questions. What might be some signs, some evidence, a church is falling into that kind of human reliance, trusting in <coughs> human strength? Um, what would be some signs of that? What things might we trust in instead of the Lord? And then why is it so tempting? Okay, what's so tempting about earthly powers and all the rest of it, rather than trusting the Lord? Over to you. Okay, we ought to um, we ought to wrap up. Hopefully, there's lots of sort of fruitful things to keep chatting about there. It is a constant temptation, isn't it, to trust in human things, be it money, wisdom, buildings, particular people, um, prayerlessness is often a sign of it. Um, 
yeah, no doubt other things too. Um, and just so tempting because we want to live by sight, not by faith. And we can see the bank balance. We can see the building. We can see the person. Um, we can't see the Lord. So it's always that faith sight um, tension. Uh, let me pray and we'll wrap up. Father in heaven, we pray that we will be people who live by faith and not by sight. Who know that you are the God who lifts up uh, the lowly and casts down the mighty. Uh, we pray that we wouldn't be souls. Uh, that we wouldn't be like the Israelites trusting in a uh, sort of human power, lofty things. But would we humble ourselves before you. Uh, give us broken spirits, contrite hearts. Give us um, empty hands. Uh, make us poor in spirit, we pray. And make us prayerful too. Would we know that you are the one who is lifted up and high and mighty. In you is all the power. And therefore we don't need to find substitutes for you. Uh, and now us to live, we pray, by faith and not by sight. Bless us in this way. Even this morning, as we gather, would we know we are meeting with you, though we can't see you? Uh, would we know that you are among us? Bless us this way, uh, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.